Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. Uh, did you hear? Hitler didn't use any chemical weapons during World War II. There was no Holocaust. <laughs> I got to tell you, the Trump White House rewriting history. Hello, everybody. On a Wednesday, April 12. There you are. Great to see you. Thank you for joining us. It's The Bill Press Show. <coughs> Just take it off here. On this Wednesday, with all the uh, news of the day from our nation's capital, around the country, and around the globe, we bring it to you, serve it up, and you tell us what it all means to you, what you think about what's going on. We're coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, on a beautiful spring day. It was spectacular yesterday in our nation's capital. Hope you had a good day wherever you happen to be, but um, springtime here is the best time in the capital. When the weather is uh, just a nice, maybe 75, 80 degrees, all the flowers are out and uh, blue sun, blue skies. It was a beautiful, beautiful day, uh, except for all the goings on down at the White House, of <laughs> course. Congress is out of town, uh, but the White House, President Trump, still in town until uh, he goes down to Mar-a-Lago again for the weekend, costing us $3.3 million. He will welcome the Secretary General of NATO to the White House today. We'll bring you up to date on all of it again. And as a part of the Young Turks Network, I look forward to hearing from you. Your questions, your comments on the news of the day, send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. And we dive right in. But first. This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Okay, Bill. Yeah. Uh, yes. So North Carolina has a major problem. We just sort of settled the whole HB2 situation, the bathroom bill, even though it was a terrible compromise. But the NCAA is going to bring their business back there. Well, yesterday, the North Carolina House submitted a bill that seeks to make gay marriage illegal. Now, the Supreme Court has ruled on this. They can't do that. Well, they did. Now, whether or not this becomes a law, we'll see. But... That that you have an argument with. But the House went ahead and did introduce this bill to say uh, that gay marriage would be made illegal in the state of North Carolina, uh, which would uh, reinstitute the state's constitution, the state constitution's ban on same-sex marriage. It's already been. I can't understand how they could even consider that law. It's already Supreme Court has already ruled on it. You are not Supreme Court has already ruled on it. The governor will veto it. You know, though, we've talked about this before. North Carolina is a great state. There sure. are great people in North Carolina, really. Yeah. And, and you know, it is a state that's in the 21st century. There are people in this legislature who want to take it back to the 18th century. They're going to reinstate slavery. They might as well. They should have a bill that says we're going to go back to owning slaves. 
It's really terrible what's happened in North Carolina. It is. It, 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 no. it really, really I'm is. not trying to advocate violence, but I feel like one of us should go down to North Carolina and slap each one of these North Carolina yeah. lawmakers in the face. Yeah. It's yeah, just, I mean, come on. Knock a little sense into somebody, you know? It, it's, it's completely insane. It's completely insane. Uh, all right. On a lighter note, well, maybe not such a lighter note because this is kind of heavy. KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, they've introduced a new menu item. You know, you know, I'm always on this front. Yeah, and you know how often I go to KFC. I know. Well, as often as I go to McDonald's. So you know, 420 is a good day to go to KFC. Just, just you're aware. Well, if you if if it's 420, this is something you might actually or pot and chicken. Well, because you get super high, and that's the only time that I would ever eat KFC. (laughs) Yeah. Well, here's the thing: if you want fried chicken, but you also want pizza, KFC might have a solution for you. It's called the Cheetza. Yep. The Cheetza. It is a pizza. No, and instead no, of a crust, no, hear me no, out. No. Instead of a crust. No, no, I don't want to. Do you want to guess what they use, Bill? Yeah. They chicken use fried skin. chicken. Yeah. They use fried chicken. Now, they debuted this in the Philippines in 2015, and guess what? It was a huge Crushed. hit. They a love it over there. giant hit. So they now have the chitza. It's going to be uh, a pizza, and instead of dough, it's going to be a flattened piece of fried chicken topped with tomato sauce, slices of, quote, chicken ham, no, and pineapple chunks with mozzarella and cheese. It's going to be a no for me. If I wanted that, I'd go to the Philippines, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, leave it over there. Don't bring it here. your radio on tv and online this is the bill press show hello sports fans what do you say uh here we go off to the races on a wednesday april 12 it it is the uh, bill press show great to see you today thanks for being part of the program as we come out to you on youtube youtube.com slash the bill press show on free speech tv and what do you say? Looking good out there in Chicago on WCPT and uh, throughout the city of Chicago and all of the suburbs, wherever you happen to be, coast to coast, listening or watching all part of the Young Turks Network. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the program. Uh, the best two hours of the morning to bring you up to date on all the news of the day and to get your comments. Want to hear from you? Give us send us your comments on Twitter. At BP Show, we monitor them, we uh, respect them, we listen to them, and we act accordingly. So there is so much going on today. Let's just start with the uh, latest uh, election results from uh, Kansas. It looked like a close race, and it turned out to be a hell of a lot closer than it should have been. But Republican Ron Estes, with the help, by the way, of Donald Trump, and Mike Pence and the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee did pull out a win after all yesterday. It should have not been close. It should have been a runaway for the Republicans. It was not. Uh, and so even though it's a win, and a win is a win is a win, gotta, you got to admit that. I'm not trying to spin it any other way. Uh, but still, it doesn't uh, bode well for 2018 uh, candidate Republican Ron Estes admitting pretty close. You have fewer people that express their opinion. In a race like that, you know, one or two votes really has a, an impact on the percentage. That's a margin between uh, two different candidates. He ended up winning by about eight points. Haven't seen the final results yet. They haven't tallied the final results yet. And Donald Trump won that district 
by 27 points. Mike Pompeo, the last Republican who held that district, won it easily by you know 30, 40 points every time that he ran. So, uh, and in the early vote, the early vote um, was 44. Democrats won the early vote. Is what point I'm making? It was 44, 45 to 35, something like that, in the early vote, which was uh, pretty significant. Uh, but people turned out. Uh, I think the robocalls from Pence and Trump. Uh, definitely helped there toward the end. Um, the uh, Democrat uh, said, listen, don't count me out. James Thompson didn't make it this time, but uh, next year, this was his special election, remember? Next year's the real, the real, uh, the real event, Thompson says. I'll be back. We are people-powered. We are not paid and bought for, or bought and paid for by special interest groups. I represented the people, and I will be doing so again in January. You know, you're, you're right, a win is a win, and the Republicans won this. But you can't, like, deny nope. that this yeah. is a really, really, really big deal and an indicator of what's going on in this country. As you pointed out, not just double digits that Republicans normally win this seat, right? Yeah. By, like, yeah. blowout double blowout. digits, 25, blowout. 30 points. They don't even, Republicans never even had to campaign in this district. No. And the, and the National Party... Uh, and the national committees, the Democratic or Republican, rather, Congressional Campaign Committee, uh, never had to spend any money in this district. It right. Was, it was a done deal. So it you is have, a blood red district. Yeah, you have a slam dunk for a Republican, and it was a it was a single digit win. Now, the unofficial results, as you mentioned, at seven or eight points. And I think Estes, I'm pretty sure, was the state treasurer, very close to Sam Brownback and uh, James Johnson uh, Thompson, rather, had never run for election before at all. So. Uh, it was a good good effort on the part of Democrats, good and a good challenge, and a um, uh, a scary kind of foreboding for Republicans about what uh, what lies ahead uh, in 2018. Meanwhile, um, Jeff Sessions down on the border yesterday, um, you know they they want to really keep putting out the word that the Trump administration discovered the southern border, right? Uh, again. Simply ignoring the facts, uh, Jeff Sessions, this is a whole new age for immigration, for border control. This is a new era. This is the Trump era. The lawlessness, the abdication of duty to enforce our laws and the catch and release policies of the past are over. And Sessions says there's a big business bringing these people in here and we're going to shut it down. The transportation and harboring of aliens. As you know too well, this is a booming business. No more. Uh, you, know, you know, he's just full of you-know-what. The fact is that Barack Obama, I mean, first, every president since Ronald Reagan has made a big issue about the border, Democrats and Republicans. And Barack Obama in particular, remember, immigration organizations called him the deporter-in-chief because he sent so many people back to Mexico and Central America. The fact is, for 2015, I believe it was, there were more people that went south than came north across the border. The fact is, he put about 5,000 more border agents at the border uh, and and toughened the border and put uh, drones on the border and new uh, technology, uh, electronic surveillance and everything. The fact that Barack Obama really cracked down on it. He was a hard ass when it comes to immigration. 
this idea that Donald Trump himself and Jeff Sessions now and the rest of the people put out that it was just basically an open, porous border, open doors under Barack Obama. It's just simply a big lie. And they yeah. keep repeating it. Total total garbage. And by the way, you know, there there's a lot to be said about the sort of heartlessness of, of how Barack Obama handled the immigration situation here. And I think that it was pretty ugly. And we slammed him for it. And we slammed time. him for it. But but the the point here is listen to one of the things Jeff Sessions said yesterday. It's a quote. He says, quote, it is here on this sliver of land where we first take our stand against this filth. End quote. Yes. So Yes. Uh, the have, language Yeah. I have to point out when he gave the speech he dropped against this filth. He didn't he didn't say those words out loud. It yeah, was in okay. it was in his the written his, version. Yes. It was in his written version. But the idea that that would be That's in how there. they look at it. No. That's exactly. how they look at it. The, 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 but people in Mexico filth. Why are we surprised? This is the Trump era. Yeah. Yeah. Mhm. Uh in fact, in fact, does this sound like uh, Donald Trump, the day he announced for president at Trump Tower. Here is the, the full quote, uh, uh, Peter. Uh, again, he dropped the last three words, but Jeff Sessions in his written speech says, we mean criminal organizations that turn cities and suburbs into war zones that rape and kill innocent civilians and who profit by smuggling poison and other human beings across our borders. That's how Donald Trump started. And he went from there calling them rapists and criminals and murderers all the way to the White House. Yeah. So, yeah, they're riding this. It's unbelievable. They're riding that horse, and Jeff Sessions was riding it yesterday. Uh, yes, indeed. And then, all right, we got to go there. We get to the briefing. You know, friends, uh, as you know, I get to the briefing as often as I can. Uh, was there Monday? Was there yesterday? And it is always fireworks. You never know what uh, Sean Spicer is going to say. Um, you're never really sure. You're ready for anything. But boy, yesterday took the cake. I mean, <laughs> unfreaking believable. All right, now we know what the White House is up to, right? Uh, two things. They're really they they sent these missiles into Syria for a couple of reasons. One, they clearly wanted. Well, first of all, what Bashar al-Assad did was horrific. Should not be should be condemned by everybody, and it was appropriate, I believe, to take some action. But the Trump White House certainly, their aim here was number one to show you see we're not cozy with Russia after all. You thought we were Putin's friend? Oh no, we're not. We'll even bomb his buddy Bashar al-Assad. And then yesterday, they did this. We will accuse Russia of covering up for Bashar al-Assad. Uh, so that's one thing they had in mind. Secondly, they certainly wagged the dog. We're trying to distract from all this Russian connection, Trump-Russian connection story, uh, and and get the media talking about something else, which they succeeded in doing. Um, and thirdly, I think really they are trying to prepare us for war in Syria, for a ground war in Syria. They've now announced... And Sean Spicer said it for the last two days that Bashar al-Assad must go. Of course, that was the Obama policy as well. But President Obama said, we're not going to send any ground troops. We're not going to have a no-fly zone. We're not going to do any acts of war in there. We're going to concentrate on ISIS. ISIS. 
Uh, but the Trump administration is starting to say, no, um, this is so serious. We've got to get in there. We've got to engage. This was maybe just the first step. They've already said more military actions are possible. Just watch. We do this. He does that. He does that. We're not going to telegraph our moves, but there'll be more military action. And so t- in order to show how this was so bad, it was worse than anything that anybody else has done, watch. Building the case for saying we're justified in starting World War III or at least another Middle East war uh, in Syria. Sean Spicer yesterday, to make that point, says this is even worse than anything that Hitler did during World War II. You know, you had a, you know, someone as despicable as Hitler who didn't even sink to, the, to, the, to using chemical weapons. So you have to, if you're Russia, ask yourself, is this a country that you and a regime that you want to align yourself with? Yeah. Good God. So he started out by saying, we didn't use chemical weapons in World War II. And then again, you just heard it. Somebody as despicable as Hitler didn't even sink to using chemical weapons. I got to, I was standing in the back and I just went, <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, and you could hear this gasp throughout the briefing room when Sean Spicer said that. I mean, hello, sarin gas, where was it invented? It was invented in Germany. It was invented by German scientists. When was it, it used? It was first used in World War II by Nazi troops against innocent, yes, innocent civilians. I mean, it was just un freaking believable. And then finally, Cecilia Vegas from um, uh, Reuters, um, no, AB, is she ABC or Reuters? I forgot. AB, ABC. ABC. Yeah, right. Thanks. Um, she said, uh, duh, <laughs> are you saying Hitler did not use chemical weapons? And then here, here's Spicer fumbling all over himself. Quote, Hitler didn't even sink to the level of using chemical weapons. What did you mean by that? I think when you come to sarin gas, uh, there was no, he was not using the gas on his own people the same way that a shot is doing. I mean, there was clearly, I, 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 a I shot. understand your point. Thank you. I, I, thank you. I appreciate that. There was not in the, in the he brought him into the, to, um, to oh the Holocaust Center. I understand that. But I'm the saying in the way that the Assad used them, where he went into towns, dropped them down to innocent into the middle of towns. It was brought to it. So the use of it, and I appreciate the clarification. What is he talking about? Yeah. Okay. He has first, no idea what he's talking about. No. First of all, the name is Bashar al-Assad. Okay. He says Bashar al-Assad. That Ashad is doing it. Yeah. Clearly, Ashad. Ashad. He uh, called him Bashad like is doing yeah. he I mean, called was, him like Bashan Alasir at one yeah. point, like Bas- which I think is a yeah. character off of the TV show Homeland. Uh, yeah. I can see a stable and peaceful <laughs> Syria with Bashad Alasir uh, uh, Bashar Assad in, in charge. No, I, Bashar Al Assad. I know you've mispronounced his name a few times. Yeah. Uh, Wolf yeah. Blitzer letting him know. Wolf Blitzer says, "Okay, here's a pronunciation test." But then to say, "Oh yeah, yeah." Well, um, yeah, that's right. No, Hitler did use them, but he didn't drop. He didn't drop them on innocent people uh, from planes. Uh, oh, instead, he just rounded them up and brought them to gas chambers, concentration camps, and killed six million Jews, gays, and others. Uh, and that's different. And that was somehow what Syria did was, like, worse. And then, oh, yeah, that's right. Well, Hitler didn't just drop the bombs from the planes. He brought them to 
Holocaust centers. What? So the Holocaust center, I understand. Holocaust centers. I mean, that is the worst phrase you ever heard for a concentration camp or a death camp or a murder camp. A center. So there, there's so a hill many... center on the hill where you can take right up here. Sure. I did a program there last night with the Librarian of Congress. It was a wonderful program. And last night there were French classes and Spanish classes and cooking classes and dance classes and art classes. That's the center. That's not what was happening at Auschwitz. Jesus. You know, it, it's like it is embarrassing. It's embarrassing. It, it is really, really embarrassing. And, this and, is the guy who speaks for the president of the United States. Now, there, there are a couple of different things going on here. The White House, Donald Trump, uh, Steve Bannon, all these people in his administration have a real problem with speaking to Jewish people, right? Like, if you remember when they had this, you know, the... the, uh, It was National Jewish Appreciation Day or something. Yeah. But they didn't mention Jews. Jews. What was it? I forget. Or like, they they talked about all the people persecuted by the Holocaust and didn't mention... The Holocaust Remembrance Day, but they did not mention Jews. They didn't mention the Jews. Thank you. Right. So you've got all these anti-Semitic acts. You've got these uh, Jewish cemeteries that are being vandalized. And the president and nobody in his staff would really speak up about it. So there's a real disconnect over over all of this. That's number one. No, number two, like Sean Spicer saying that Hitler didn't use gas on his own people. I'm, yeah, he did. That's the whole point. Hello, he did more than anybody else in history. Yeah, I mean, those were his own. They were German Jews that he was killing. Yeah, uh, yeah. I thought Jake Tapper had a. Uh, had a great uh, line yesterday. He, he just suggested, it's not that far from the White House. You could see it from the White House that Sean Spicer ought to take a little time and go over to the Holocaust Museum. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just just walk through and, and maybe he would not make the mistake again. But it's just, cause first, anytime we've said this before, anytime you bring Hitler into any argument whatsoever, you got to be really, really careful because people tend to really overplay the Hitler line. You know, you know who is as bad as Hitler? Hitler. Yeah, right. What Just the hell is that from Sean Spicer? <laughs> even out, even the liberal Alex Jones has to weigh in on it. <laughs> but you know, uh, like I tell you, when when the briefing was over, oh man, yesterday, I mean, outside the briefing room, reporters were literally in shock. I mean, I walked out. One guy turned to me and he said. What just happened in there? Can you believe it? He was just, it was incredible. People with their mouths open, just gaping, just could not believe what Spicer said. All right. He went on to CNN yesterday afternoon and he apologized. But this is a problem with Spicer. He just rattles on. He throws this crap out there. Again, they are so intent on their own ideology and their own propaganda that this is the worst thing that ever happened on the planet ever in the history of humankind and therefore... Donald Trump was right to respond, and more is coming, and they're trying to pave the way for World War III in Russia. And to do that, they even say something as dumb as yesterday. It just proves, really, we have, I mean, this guy has no business, no business being the press secretary of the United States. Uh, The head of the uh, Anne Frank Center yesterday, Stephen Goldstein, um, said how, uh, this is is his take on Spicer's uh, competence in doing the job. Sean Spicer today denied that millions of Jews were gassed by Adolf Hitler during the Nazi regime. That makes Sean Spicer unqualified to be press secretary for the president. And according to Mr. Goldstein, what ought to happen next? 
President Trump needs to fire Sean Spicer now. That's amazing. Yeah, that is. That's as strong as you can get. The Anne Frank Center is not a political group at all, but it's a very, very strong statement. By the way, Fox News this morning, they've been spending all their time on Fox and Friends attacking the uh, mainstream media for even reporting on this story. They they said that they attacked all three networks last night because all three networks led with the story. And I'm sure if they're listening in, they will attack us for doing the same thing. Uh, look, BS. This is a big story when the press secretary of the United States, of the president of the United States, says that Hitler did not use gas in World War II. I'm sorry. That's a big story. Yeah, and, and it's and just... And just... You cannot excuse that. You can't apologize for that. It, that's it. it shows just how out of touch and, frankly, how how stupid Sean Spicer is and a lot of people in the administration. And the thing is, it's not just that they're stupid, because let's be clear, they are painfully, painfully stupid. Yeah. It's not just that. It's just that they don't even care to educate themselves, and they're not interested in doing better they're white men in a white man's world and that's all they care about that's the only view that they want to look at and they're not going to broaden their horizons at all how do you come back from that i don't know we'll see today but anyhow hey speaking about stupid men who have no business being in the job that they're in uh, can we talk about oscar munoz yes he is the ceo of united airlines and after United Airlines uh, thugs dragged that uh, doctor off a plane, by the way, it was just a one-hour flight. <laughs> you know, I, I think, think it's they were gone like to dumber, yeah. Chicago. I think to St. Louis or something like yeah. that. Yeah, you know, and they had uh, four of their own employees. You know the story that they needed to get. They felt they needed to get to wherever they were going, an hour away, uh, and so they bumped four passengers, overbooked the flight. They had bumped. They bumped four passengers. Offered the money, paid them, I think, 800 bucks uh, to take a different flight. But one passenger who was in his seat, having paid for his seat, uh, d- rejected their offer and refused. You know, it is basically a volunteer. They ask for volunteers, don't yeah. they? Yeah. So you don't have to, at least before a couple of days ago. But when he said no, they went in, knocked them around. Dragged him off the plane. We've all seen the we've all seen the video. Tried to smear his reputation yesterday. And the first thing the, uh, the CEO of United said, "We had no choice. Uh, our people had no choice. They had to do this." Wrong. Uh, he came out another time and said, "We congratulate everybody for the way they handled this." Wrong. Finally, yesterday, third time. It took him three times before he finally realized <clears throat> when he saw how their stock was plummeting uh, that maybe I'd better apologize for this and it was sort of a half-ass apology yesterday um but this is this is bad news totally unacceptable and um uh, the, the 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 comments across the board have been devastating uh, i love the fact that uh, the uh, uh united em- uh, the emirates airline mm. you know united last week he had said uh, these aren't really airlines they're just uh, something like uh they're they're part of the brands for foreign governments or something like that. So he, so Emirates yesterday came out with a little, a little. They tweeted out, um, "Not enough seating. Prepare for beating." Oh, geez. they put him at United Airlines. <laughs> Not enough seating. Prepare for beating. And then they said for their airline, they had a new, the new slogan, "No dragging." <laughs> so, 
they were really making fun of United. But did you know yeah. that Southwest Airlines yesterday did a, a a live video where they were just greeting every passenger oh, as no. they got that, off the oh, plane? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. People were taking advantage of this. Folks. By the way, you mentioned United stock. Uh, it, it it fell one point one percent yesterday, which which adds up to two hundred fifty five million dollars in Whoa. one day. In one day, yeah, yeah. Uh, I haven't seen the letters to the um, the letters to the editors this morning uh, are just just brutal. Here's a couple from the uh, New York Times this morning to the editor. The O'Hare incident reveals the true corporate attitude of many airlines, especially United, toward their passengers. Contempt. Oof. Cram your customers into tight spaces. Throw a bag of peanuts at them and nickel and dime them for everything that used to be included in the fare. Yeah, that's the way they treat people today. Another letter to the editor. If a, I love this point. If a car dealer sold you a car, collected your money, and then turned around and sold that same car to somebody else, the dealer would be, capable, would be culpable of fraud. And yet airlines do pretty much the same thing thousands of times a day when they overbook their flights. Excellent point. That's exactly, exactly what they do. Yeah. No other industry can treat you as badly as the airlines and get away with it. Right? I mean, there is, yeah. there is sort of a yeah. understanding yeah. and agreement of service that if I pay you for a good or a service, I am entitled to get that back. Like, but, there's an exchange there that doesn't exist with the airline. But let's remember again. Let's remember again. Uh, they did this to get their own employees, four of their own employees who were not paying, on that plane because they felt they had to get them there. They had to get them to this next destination, which, again, I believe was about just about an hour away. You know what they should have done? Mm. Hey, guys, there are no more seats on this plane. Rent a car yeah. and drive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rent a car and drive. Take you a couple of hours to get there, but rent a car and drive, and we'll reimburse we'll reimburse you for the car and the gas. Yeah, easily done. Instead, they have this nightmare. Uh, and by the way, I know you'll be relieved to know this. Um, Wayne Paselli from the Humane Society joins us next, by the way. But before we go, you'll be relieved to know this, that the Bill O'Reilly's taking a vacation. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, uh, if anybody's earned it. Uh, All that sexual harassing really does take yeah, its toll on you. Yeah, he's just worn out. Worn out dealing with all these sexual harassment lawsuits. So he, he announced last night he wanted everybody to know this was a pre-planned vacation. Uh, uh-huh, yeah. I grabbed some vacation because it's spring and Easter time. Last fall, I booked a trip that should be terrific. Not going to tell you where it is, but we have a contest on BillOReilly.com. Guess where Bill's going. I'll have oh, yeah. a full report when I return. Oh, yeah. Can't wait for that. You know what? Let's hope it's rehab, by the way. Yeah. I don't give a flying, you know what, rat's ass where he is going. <laughs> rehab. I just hope he doesn't come back. Yeah. That would be nice. Yeah. He goes away on vacation, and then they just don't give it and back. And we'll see it. if the Murdoch empire really believes in what it says about yeah. having a uh, a safe workplace. Again, Wayne Paselli from the Humane Society, one of our favorite people, one of our favorite organizations doing great work. We know all of you agree. Let's talk to Wayne. Catch up on the latest in the field of animal rights coming up next on the show. Bashar al-Assad in, in charge. Bashar al-Assad, I know you've mispronounced his name a few times. Uh, Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. 
same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Here we go now on a Wednesday, April 12, uh, the Bill Press Show live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Kind of quiet on the home front uh, these days with the House and the Senate out for their two-week uh, Easter Passover break. Uh, but the White House is uh, certainly uh, stirring it up and giving us uh, plenty to talk about, as well as some uh, special elections uh, around the country. Again, we're coming to you live from Washington, D.C., brought to you today by the United Steelworkers and their colorful and outspoken international president, uh, the one and only Leo Girard. The United Steelworkers, North America's largest industrial union, representing over 1.2 million active and retired members. Check out their website at USW. Dot org. Uh, I know I told you Wayne Pacelli was coming up. Uh, he is uh, in the next half hour. I got a little off on my chronology here. Uh, and we are so pleased to welcome back a good friend, um, author of a book called Rat Eft. <laughs> Still the best title Rat that Eft. I've seen. Uh, the True Story Behind the Secret Plan to Steal America's uh, Democracy. He's also a senior fellow at Fair Vote. David Daly. Hey, David, good to see you. Welcome Always back. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, to a beautiful spring in Washington, uh, D.C. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, it's sort of current wisdom among political analysts that there is no way Democrats can win back the House of Representatives before new lines are drawn after the census of 2020. That's kind of your thesis, too, isn't it? Do you still stand by it? I do stand by it. I think that the political climate has certainly been changing in this country, but that, I mean, Fairvote just issued a report on the monopoly politics uh, in which they've gone out and predicted every race in 2018. The 368 seats that there is extreme confidence in, and there's always a 100% accuracy on these races, starts off at 205 for the Republicans, 163 for the Democrats. So that leaves you with, what, 67 seats? The Democrats would need to win 13 of those last 67 seats to hang on to control of the House. That's a pretty reasonable game. So what of the reasonable game meaning? I would imagine the Republicans could... Okay. Still find a way to hold on to thirteen. All right, that's what I thought. I just want to be sure that's what you meant. Right. Yes. Right. So the theory, again, advanced by some, that Donald Trump is so unpopular, his his ratings are so low, historically low, and will remain so, uh, and the Republicans not having been able to repeal Obamacare or build the wall or get anything substantially done, is going to make them weak enough in 2018 that Democrats could take over. You don't buy it. I don't buy it. Um, we Get went out through of here. in this. <laughs> we went through in this monopoly politics r- report, and also sort of looked at what would happen if the Democrats were to win a share of the popular vote in 2018 that is equal to the share of the popular vote in House races that they achieved in the 2006 wave which was 54-46 in the popular vote mm. for House candidates. And in, in 2006, uh, that added up to 256 seats for the Democrats and control. Right now, under these lines, under these districts, that's 208 seats. Mm. The same 
5446 adds up to about 44 fewer seats under these maps. That's the impact of reapportionment, isn't it? Yes. Or of the of the last reapportionment. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. And and maybe impossible to overcome. I think it's extraordinarily difficult to overcome, but the key a point here, I think, is that even if the Democrats can thread that needle, even if you can pull off a long shot and take back the House, you would certainly earn a check on on President Trump and his agenda for the next uh, two years. Mm-hmm. That is a valuable a thing right. if you're a Democrat. Yeah. However, you would do nothing to, to change the underlying structure that Democrats would face in 2020, both in Congress and also in state legislatures across the country. And it would do nothing to change the underlying um, uh, forces that would be in charge of redistricting after the 2020 census. Okay. Uh, Before we get to 2020, let's come back to this week, uh, last night uh, in Kansas. Yes. Uh, a seat that Donald Trump, a district that Donald Trump won by 27 points, Mike Pompeo's congressional seat in Kansas, that he generally won by 30, 40 points margin, right, without almost breaking out of sweat. He won uh, with 62% last time. Is that right? Yes. 62%, yeah. It turned out to be a fairly close race. The Republicans did win it. Ron Estes won it by about 52-5 to 45-7. There you go. It's close. Uh, yeah. Eight points. About 8,500 uh, votes. So what does that tell you? Well, I think it tells you that there is Democratic enthusiasm, but you have to look at turnout in that race. You had 120,000 people turn out in the special election versus 288,000 people turn out mm-hmm. in the generals. So um, I do not think that the Democrats, even if they had taken that seat last night, would have had any l- legitimate chance of holding on to it in in 2018. The question becomes, though, what is the Democrats' a strategy? Um, a, a Thompson, the Democrat, that came out and asked the DCCC and the National Party to put $20,000 into that race in the last closing days after a news report came out showing that a Republican internal poll had the race at one a point. Hmm. The National Party turned him down. Um, uh, Chuck Schumer tweeted last night. Stop. Yes. The National Democratic Party turned him down. The National Democratic Party turned him down. Readers Wait, of the Daily. 20,000 bucks. 20,000 bucks? 20,000, yes. For I mean, we could have crowdsourced that on this show. <laughs> we could have gotten that by the end of the program. Uh, I mean, exactly. ridiculous. Um, so what is the strategy? Uh, Chuck Schumer tweets but I thought there yeah. were these three districts, <laughs> Kansas, Montana, yes. and Georgia, and Democrats were going to go all out. And Tom Paris was going to bring back the 50-state strategy of Howard Dean. And they're going to fight every district, every state, all the way up, all the way through. They're no? certainly fighting in Georgia. There is yeah. an $8.3 million bet that's been placed on John Ossoff oh. and Georgia's a sixth. That's what the Democrats have raised there, both as far as crowdsourcing. But... I mean, the, the national, That's a real uphill battle there. It's a real uphill battle, and it's a similar district in many ways. Um, and we talk the, a lot about Ossoff and, yeah. and the, the, the chance of that happening, but the reality is, like, that would be, that would be a pretty big upset. The Democrats have not upset. held that seat since 1976. Okay, yeah. Uh, 
I mean, Gingrich takes that seat in 1978, holds it for, for a long time. Tom Price has that yeah. seat for an awful long time. Price also wins with 62%. If the Democrats uh, pull this off and either Ossoff gets above 50 or he wins a runoff in June, he again is not necessarily likely to hold on to right. that seat in 2018. You have then spent eight point three million dollars on a seat that you hold for 15 months that has zero impact on a redistricting. Why didn't I don't understand why Democrats wouldn't put some resources in, into Kansas. I That's mean, yeah, a great a, question. Yeah, What's it's the strategy? A red state, but still, if you're going to fight for every seat, particularly the symbolic significance of winning a deep red Republican seat yeah. in 2017 on the heels of a Trump victory would be Huge. Why are you all in Huge. in Georgia and not in at all in Kansas? And yeah. what are they doing in Montana? Is Tell real me, lack of strategy. Um, I mean, Schumer tweets uh, last night that the Democratic fight in Kansas is exactly what we're going to bring to campaigns around the country in two, well, four, six let's years. Hope not. That is the fear of yeah. a lot of people, I would imagine, <laughs> uh, that the lack of fight. What y you could see last night from from Democrats on Twitter who are leading supposedly the the uh, fight to take back uh, the House was they were uh, patting themselves on the back for not going into the Kansas race because they thought that if they had spent money there, it would have nationalized it, it would have made it a partisan race, uh, and it would have uh, shown the Republicans that they were uh, coming for them. So I guess evidently the strategy in Kansas was to not tell people you're a Democrat, not to spend any money, uh, and to hope that the election just sort of sneaks up on people. But meanwhile, um, Donald Trump did robocalls. Mike Pence did robocalls. The entire House leadership donated money to Estes. There was no such donations to Thompson. Ted Cruz went out there and campaigned for mm -hmm. Estes. Correct. And... Um, and as you pointed out, the uh, the Republican Congressional Campaign Committee was in there with us. so that, that they recognized how important it was to win it. Let me ask you this, because we, we've talked uh, to you for a uh, while now since your book came out, which is all about how uh, Democrats are essentially screwed until yeah. we get things redistricted to go our way. So not that I think that this is the right thing, but could the thinking have been like, okay, all of our resources that we have, we're going to focus on changing these districts, working to fix these districts. Is that, like, could that have played into it rather than put money in this campaign that would be a long shot? Or are they just sort of hedging their bets? That's or? a really interesting strategy. If you haven't spent all of right. this money in Georgia. In Georgia. So, so the, 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 yeah. the lack of coherence and cohesiveness between Georgia and Kansas to me is, is, is very odd. I mean, I do think on one hand that if you're a Democrat, the most important races in the country in 2017 and in 2018 are the governor's races this year in Virginia and next year in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Florida, because those are states in which the the legislatures are so far out of 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 possibility for for, for Democrats mm. that if they want to have a a a seat at the table in the redistricting in 2020, their only chance is to hold the governor's mansion and to have a veto over bad maps. I mean, in many many ways, the fight for a redistricting in 2020 
could be over after Election Day 2018. Those are the key states, and Democrats face massive structural deficits at 121.81 in Pennsylvania, 66.33 uh, in tell Ohio. Me the, uh, tell me the states again in 2018 you say are the must Michigan, win. Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Florida. And in this year, at Virginia. Um, yeah. if, if Ed Gillespie wins in Virginia, Republicans would have another trifecta in a state that has a, a two a Democratic senators and that has gone blue at the at the a presidential level in the last of three cycles. in the sense that governor and the House and, and the, the House Senate. and the Senate. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so right. total control over, over the redistricting. redistricting. I'll tell you what I right. think is really going on is like when we look at why the money didn't go into Kansas versus why it's going into Georgia is the candidate in Kansas uh, was a Bernie-crat, mm-hmm. a pro-choice Bernie. I mean, he was Bernie's guy. And so my fear is that the DNC still hasn't learned their lesson of the power of Bernie Sanders and said, and John you know, Ossoff is a very different candidate. John Ossoff yeah, he is, is a pro-business, yeah. pro-national security. Mm-hmm. That kind of sounds like a DLC Democrat. Yeah, he is not a Bernie-crat. No. Yeah, but and he, might so, be, he might be perfect for that district, however. He may very Sure, well but, I, but I mean, if, if the DNC is looking to get behind candidates that are exciting and new and a breath of fresh air, a la Bernie Sanders, yeah. they're, not mean, put, they're, they're not putting their money there yet. Nobody is suggesting that Nancy Pelosi make robocalls into Wichita or that uh, <laughs> Lena Dunham show up and drive voters to, to the polls the right, way Alyssa right. Milano is in Georgia's sixth. Uh, but uh, Thompson wasn't asking for $8.3 million. He was asking for $20,000. Um, so, you know, again, I just come back to not fundamentally understanding what the Democrats' a strategy is here. Okay. All right, we know they blew it in. They blew it in Kansas. Yes. Um, maybe they couldn't have won it, but they didn't even put up a good fight. Right. Tell us about Georgia. What are the chances of winning Georgia? Georgia is an interesting race. It's a jungle primary. You have yeah. eighteen candidates on this ballot. You have to get above a fifty percent in order to uh, win uh-huh. it straight out. And if you do not... And the only one who has a chance of doing that is John Ossoff. There's not a single poll yet that has shown Ossoff over 50. Most of them show him in the in the low to mid-40s. But nobody, 40s, else, is, nobody, but else, nobody else is close. Yeah, you have right. a very split and fractured Republican field. There's something like 15 Republican candidates out yeah. there. So if so, Ossoff does not make it above 50, you would have a June runoff uh, between him and whoever comes in second, and the would Republicans Republican. would have a chance to unify right. and um, but, but he does, and he come does, after him. He, he does have a chance of winning even, it, either in it's He's got two next shots Tuesday, at winning. Uh, uh, next Tuesday? Yeah, in April or, or June. Or right. in June, he would have a one-on-one shot. Um, it is an interesting district. It's a district that um, has not elected a Democrat since 1976. Um, it's a district. But it's a, a district that has changed. But it's a, a changing, it's changing district. Huh? The demographics yeah. there are different, and Donald Trump did not do very well in that district. Trump won it, but only 48-47 over Hillary Clinton. So it is. It's certainly a district where a Democrat would have a shot in a special election, and then if you can use the power of incumbency to try to hold on in 2018, maybe. Yeah. The idea, just the idea that you could take Newt Gingrich's district and flip it. There is a lot of symbolic value in that. Yeah, there is, right? Yeah. Um, That would be 
a really important statement, really important. You know, I think that's right. I think sign that's toward, right. Um, toward 2018. It has, yeah. and I think on top of that, it would really aid in recruitment for other Democratic candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the big problems in 2016 and and in other years in this cycle is is good candidates look at these maps and they say, I can't win in these districts, so I'm going to run for something else or I'm going to pass on it. You have an increasing number of, of, of seats that uh, simply go uncontested at all, in which case the voters in those districts have no choice. Um, and if you can show that there's a chance, you'll have more competition, more d- debate, and more dialogue. It's all good. Okay. So then let's come back and challenge your uh, your initial uh, <laughs> uh, uh, conviction here, yes. which is, again, let's say a, an Ossoff wins. You know, that does inspire a lot of other people to get involved, inspires the Democrats saying we can really win some of these districts. And, yeah, we don't have reapportionment yet, but we've got an unpopular president, an ineffective Congress, people already kind of dissatisfied with this bunch. Let's go for broke in 2018. Could Democrats take back the House on the, under that scenario in 2018? It would require probably upwards of 55 to 56 percent of the popular vote for House candidates. That doesn't happen very often. Mm. If you got to It would 55, have to be a real 50, wave. What do they call those? Wave It would election? have to be a huge wave. It would have to be bigger than the 2006 Democratic wave. It would have to be bigger than the 2010 <clears throat> Republican <clears throat> wave. I don't know if in this era but, you know, of, you also of have, partisanship if that's possible. Right. But you also have, and we talked about this yesterday with the people from, in, from Indivisible, you know, you've got this tremendous political energy out there, uh, which is not necessarily Democratic Party-led. In nope. fact, like it's not. It's, it's not. just grassroots-led yes. at these town halls, at these marches. There's another one this Saturday. You know, and, and a lot of that is spilling over into congressional town halls and congressional races, Right. They're looking at, you know, they're looking, they, they want to know, where can we put our energy next, right? Just like I, I, I we were talking about the, up in uh, New Jersey, New Jersey 11, yeah. with Rodney Froelichheisen, veteran Republican congressman, and they just pushed him and pushed him until he met with them and he agreed he was going to vote against the Republican repeal thing. And everybody was like, okay, now what do we do next? Exactly. They have a victory. So, so there's going to be a lot of that energy coming into 2018 as well. Maybe, you know. Pieces are coming together. I admire your optimism. There is thank a, you, <laughs> thank you. There is a lot of I'm energy and enthusiasm out Man. there. Uh, I also think that there is a huge structural problem, and um, I mean, allow me to play the 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 pessimist card, which is what I do so well. I feel like my book ought to come with like a bottle of bourbon or something. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, more. I mean, what happens if in 2018, you do get a wave that is along the lines of of 2006, but mm-hmm. it's a fi- another 54 percent popular vote wave, yeah. and it does add up to just 208 seats, and it's not control. So yeah. y- you could have a pretty big majority for Democratic House candidates and not actually have that translate into a majority of seats. It happened right. in 2012. 1.4 million more votes for Democratic House candidates than Republicans. And Republicans they, held a 234, 201 yeah. advantage in the House. So right. it would so, probably have to be upwards of 1.4 million votes. Is that... All right. 
Well, then that, what that means is, of course, and I, I, I'm not not I mean, mm-hmm. I'm a realist, yes. too. I mean, yes. I know the reality of these districts. And um, I had my own experience in California mm-hmm. with redrawing of those districts at one time. Um, that means then in order to have districts that are going to be favorable after 2020, the Democrats really have to focus on 2018 and 2020 on governorships and state legislative races, correct? I think the governors are even more important than the state legislatures because the legislatures are so far out of whack right now. I mean, Pennsylvania is 121-81 in the House. Ohio, 66-33 Republican in the House. Wisconsin, 64-35. Florida, 75-41. Whoa, whoa. Those are Republican versus Democratic. Those are all Republican majorities in in largely blue states, purple states. So um, you can try to flip. No idea they were that one sided. You can try to flip that many districts or you can win one statewide race in 2018. If I'm the Democrats, I put my focus in there. But I also think that. So at least the governor can veto a bad bill. At least, yes. And then you have a long term structural process. But we also have to be thinking about serious reforms to this. A redistricting process that that, that like you know, what thinks uh, L- like taking it away from the legislature absolutely that, that thinks uh, uh, structurally and perhaps what we need to do is channel some of this energy and enthusiasm in the country not into trying to flip individual districts for one party or the other but into the kind of serious structural electoral reform that allows for change. If we start thinking about things like ranked choice voting, if we start thinking about multi-member districts, if we realize that in some ways it's not redistricting, that's Mm -hmm. our problem, but it's districting itself that ensures that so many voters do not have a choice and a voice. Right. Now, several states, and it changes, but I think California is one of them right now, too, that have taken it away from the legislature and given it to a panel of I don't know, former judges mm-hmm. or former legislators or uh, outstanding citizens of some kind, whatever, who then present a plan and present that to the legislature. A commission's that, commission, yeah. A commission's sometimes work and sometimes simply uh, take the partisanship and bury it deeper into a back room. Is there any other formula that's been thrown out there as an alternative to legislative redistricting? Um, the commissions tend to be the most uh, popular. Yeah. Um, as far as a reform, but they do not necessarily take all of the partisanship out of yeah. the process. How many states have gone to the commission? You've got about 38, 39 states right now in which the legislature plays the dominant role, and okay. about 10 or 11 in which there is some other form of process. Um, I mean, if we were to actually think about an entirely new way of doing this, if you were to take these states and say, we're going to have multi-member districts, we're going to have ranked choice voting in in mm-hmm. these districts, you would see a different kind of member elected. Yeah. Y- y- you would see a, a Democrats elected out of Kansas, you would see Republicans elected out of Massachusetts, you would have a different kind of collegiality and, and up is down left and, is right yeah, <laughs> y- 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 you could if you wanted to actually change the system in really interesting ways that encouraged consensus and dialogue 
You know, uh, if we could only do that and then get rid of the Electoral College, oh my God, you know. We'd be two for two. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> I'm Absolutely. glad we've solved all of this in one morning. I am too. <laughs> On Twitter, you can follow Dave Daly at DaveDaly3, at DaveDaly3. Thanks so much, David. Thanks Always for coming in. Always a pleasure. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hey, Congress may be out of town, but we're still here. We're still raising hell. Yes, indeed, it's the Bill Press Show on a Wednesday, April 12, live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll keep it going, uh, even if the House and the Senate uh, flee flee their uh, quarters here for a couple of weeks. And we'll bring you up to date on all the latest news uh, here from Washington and around the country uh, and around the globe. Good to see you today. Thank you for joining us, all part of the Young Turks Network. We're looking at you coast to coast on Free Speech TV and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Uh, With the help of uh, one of our favorite friends uh, this morning here and one of our favorite organizations, the Humane Society of America of the United States, Wayne Paselli, president and CEO. Wayne, how's it going? Great, great to see you, you guys. You've been on the road a lot. You've been, you're a busy man. <laughs> a busy yeah. guy. You know the humane. You're looking good. You're looking trim. Well, and thank, thank tanned you. Tanned and thank you. Know, what's going on? Here? Thank you. Well, you know it's a big country, right? And the, the, yeah. the humane society of the United States. We're active in all 50 states. We actually have humane society international. We are active in 50 countries. Is that right? We just yeah. passed a comprehensive anti-cruelty law in Guatemala banned animal testing there for cosmetics Whoa. and outlawed dogfighting, just outlawed dogfighting in Mexico. No. Yes, yes. So a number of states in Mexico outlawed dogfighting, but there was no national law, so we just passed a national law. Yeah, good for you. Well, you have, to, you have a chance to tell us a, a lot more about that, but that's why you're here, why you're here. And you can send us your comments, of course, on Twitter, at BP Show. We'll jump right into it. But first... <laughs> This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just full of the stories making news. Okay, so you don't drink a lot of Mountain Dew, do you, Bill? Uh, No, actually, I don't. Mountain Dew, the soft drink. So there was a Mountain Dew spill in Howell, North Dakota. And they have said now, or excuse me, I'm sorry, not North Dakota, Michigan. It was in Michigan. So they spilled all this Mountain Dew out of the back of a truck, and they have now had to declare this an environmental concern. 7,000 gallons of Mountain Dew syrup spilled into under the uh, highway, and it's created what they're calling a huge foam event. <laughs> like, the syrup that they use to make Mountain Dew is so yeah. bad and so toxic that it's like it's an actual situation. The Michigan Department of Environmental Quality had to step in, said that the magnitude of the spill was highly unusual, and the high sugar syrup could have a toxic effect on 
aquatic life if it gets into rivers, lakes, and streams. You know what else Mountain Dew does? What? Kills your sperm. Does it really? Well, that was the rumor when I was a oh, kid. Everybody yeah, said, like, don't drink Mountain rumor, Dew. Then, yeah. It'll kill your sperm. <laughs> that's why it's an environmental <laughs> disaster. Now you know. <laughs> Jamie with the real news. Jamie with the real story here. It's the cheapest form of birth control. <laughs> to drink Mountain Dew. <laughs> there you go. By the way, uh, I this wouldn't is... count on it. By the way, <laughs> no, please don't do that. <laughs> right. Don't use that as as a form of birth control. But so the H and M Foundation is a company that has tapped five fashion innovators to help change the way that fashion is made. Right, and one of the people that was awarded a prize was a Dutch artist and entrepreneur who has made a textile made out of cow manure. Wayne, you're going to love this story. It's made from the cellulose found in the dry components of cow manure, and the wet materials in cow manure also contain acids necessary to transform the cellulose into a new material. She has made, this artist has made clothing out of this. They say it does not Hmm. smell like poop, but it's actually very comfortable. I would imagine when it gets wet, that would not something I'd want to wear. Animals are everywhere, right? We're cow manure, Mountain Dew, threatening aquatic life. I know, right? I sort of I, I sat on a couple of stories just to, just for you here, Wayne. But uh, so we'll see if they if the market gets a hold of this yeah, material. We'll they, she's calling it Mestic is the name of the of the uh, product. Mestic. That's the fabric that she's creating. She says, "I just want people to give a shit about the planet." <laughs> Which is, you know. Uh, that's a good slogan, yeah. good bumper sticker. All right. <laughs> on your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. Hey, what do you say, friends, uh, friends and neighbors? It is a Wednesday, April 12. Uh, so good to see you today. Thank you for joining us here on the Bill Press Show. Coming to you live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., our studio on Capitol Hill. Uh, things kind of quiet here with the House and the Senate out of town. Uh, quiet until you uh, go to the White House briefings uh, and you find out all kinds of marvelous things like um, Hitler never used gas against his own people. Isn't that strange to find out? Um, maybe Sean Spicer made a little discovery yesterday about something called the Holocaust. We were trying to, those of us in the briefing, we were trying to help him out by reminding him that uh, there were certain things called concentration camps in World War II. Um, so at any rate, whatever the news is, we'll bring it up, we'll bring you up to date here on the Bill Press Show on uh, Free Speech TV, on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. And, of course, on the great WCPT out in the Chicago area, uh, coast to coast, we're with you with the news of the day and joined by our good friend, president and CEO of the Humane Society of the United States and the world, Wayne Pacelli. <laughs> Hello, Wayne. Good morning. So before they leave, I just saw this. I could not believe it. Congress passed a resolution making it officially legal to kill hibernating bears. Yeah, this is a uh, this is a shocker, even for those of us who are cynical about what Washington is capable of doing and where it goes with some issues. You know, we heard a lot of talk about regulatory reform, right, that the Republicans were advancing the idea that they're going to disassemble regulations that were encumbering business, that were holding back jobs, that were stalling growth. 
Well, one of the first 10 issues that was part of the regulatory reform agenda was to undermine the United States Fish and Wildlife Service, which is a pro-hunting agency, Bill. Many you know, yeah, right. Yeah, they're a fish and wildlife agency. They've always been dominated by hunting interests. But the Fish and Wildlife Service imposed a rule that was years in the works that had tremendous support in Alaska to stop the use of airplanes to hunt grizzly bears on national wildlife refuges, to stop the use of steel jaw traps and snares on national wildlife refuges to kill grizzly bears and black bears, and to forbid hunting wolves during their denning season and bears during their hibernation phase and in the spring after they've emerged from hibernation. So the Congress, as you know, because apparently there were not so many job-killing regulations. This was one of their first 10 issues that they went to. It was uh, almost an entirely party-line vote. There were 10 Republicans who voted with the Humane Society on this and opposed this in the, in the House. Yeah. In the Senate, it was purely party-line. Every Republican supported this. Yeah. And it shows the, just the fealty to the NRA. Uh, this is just, they lose their minds. They're incapable of making a rational decision. Again, I want to make clear, these are national wildlife refuges. The Congress declared this category of federal lands to protect wildlife. Yes. And they're right. doing the most unconscionable forms of hunting that regular sportsmen would never associate themselves with. No regular sportsman would hunt an animal from an airplane or snare a bear or bait a grizzly bear or hunt them during their birthing season. I mean, those are antithetical to common Good notions. sportsmanship. Yes, to common notions of sportsmanship. That's yeah. why we had a lot of rank-and-file hunters in Alaska who were with us on this. But Senator Dan Sullivan uh, of Alaska led this effort in the Senate. Don Young in the House. Don Young, who also wants to undermine the U.S. ban on the ivory trade because he wants to allow people to kill walruses in Alaska to trade in the ivory for the walruses. So we may have some additional regulatory reform and open up the ivory trade if he gets his way on that, just like he did on killing grizzly bears during their birthing season. Well, you touched on my first question, which is I heard you say national wildlife refuges. I thought, now these are not national parks. They're a step down from a national park, but still they are a federally, federally protected land. I mean, I didn't think hunting was allowed on federal. Well, you uh, you wouldn't think it if it's called a wildlife refuge. Right. I mean, yeah. it I it mean, has been it has been bastardized through the decades. Uh, the original notion that Teddy Roosevelt, he was the creator of the first wildlife refuges, it was supposed to be a protected area for wildlife and then hunters would benefit as the animals fanned out mm. outside of the refuge. So mm. they were supposed to be inviolate sanctuaries for wildlife. That was the original language. Over the decades, and especially over the last 25 years, there's been an effort to open more and more of them to hunting. Now, 80% of the physical land area of the National Wildlife Refuge System is in Alaska. They've got 16 oh. glorious refuges, many of them created under a 1980 statute called the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act. Don Young was in Congress. He opposed it in 1980 when that occurred. Mm, mm. It was very clear that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife mm. Service was supposed to have supremacy in wildlife management. It wasn't just to default to the states. And I think, Bill, this is the really insidious what? element of this, is that what the Congress did is it said the state can do anything it wants on national wildlife refuges. Now, the Congress created the refuges, 
every year the Congress appropriates hundreds of millions of dollars right. to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to manage the refuges. But when they decide that you know the NRA wants something, they're just going to cede management authority to the states. It's a putsch. It's an overthrow of our federal land managers. It's a ridiculous application of states' rights thinking. It's not a state's right. Yeah. Just like a state couldn't go into Yellowstone National Park, which yep, is a right. federally managed mm-hmm. property with a national park, say, we want to start hunting grizzlies. The yeah. National Park Service has supremacy just like the Fish and Wildlife Service does. And there was all this claptrap about somehow the rules were different for Alaska because of the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act. Absolutely not. And Senator Tom Udall, whose uncle, um, Mo Udall, no shepherded the bill through the Congress, went to the floor. Nikki Songus, whose husband, Paul Songus, late husband right. Paul Songus, was one of the architects of the Senate Alaska National. They said, no way. Mm-hmm. There was never some attempt to just throw this to the state. Why do you want to call it a refuge if you're just going to let the state manage it? Just make it a state park. And, and the idea that that these grizzly bears are a threat to millions and millions of Americans, right? Or particularly when they're hibernating? Hibernate, the, Bill, I mean, the, these you, are some of them. You drag them out of their what, den or whatever and, and shoot them. This is justified under what? The, these Threat are, to national security? These are remote refuges. I mean, yeah, there's no human yeah. habitation in these no, refuges right. to begin with. So. Yeah. Even they didn't. This is just even, sport. This is it? just sport. And you know, uh, sport. W- one of the reasons I've been traveling a lot is I've been promoting the paperback version of my book, The Humane Economy. Right. And, and you know, when you think about Alaska, the big revenue generating activity associated with wildlife is wildlife watching. People oh, go yeah. and yeah. see these animals in, in Denali yeah. National Park or in Gates of the Arctic and these other national oh, yeah. wildlife refuges and parks. That generates hundreds of millions of dollars. How much does killing a grizzly bear? So, you know, right. in terms of the thinking behind, you know, what, what I do and talking about the humane economy, the humane economy is protecting these animals and allowing people to see them because you can watch a grizzly bear over and over. You can shoot it only once. There and must be 100,000 tourists who go to Alaska to see the grizzly bears for every one absolutely maybe that's probably conservative uh, right? you're right absolutely yeah. it's it's one a, hunter it's an enormous business wildlife watching Sick. and the the, yeah. co- the, the yeah. congressional delegation of alaska specifically don young i mean they he's just I, he he just you know if he, if he doesn't have an opportunity to kill something then it's not valuable yeah wayne's book by the way uh the humane economy a great book uh we talked about when it first came out is now out in paperback so if you didn't get the hardcover now's the time to get the paperback available wherever books are sold a great read and uh, even gets into some of the future of our eating habits which i have to get into (laughs) you about again uh, a little bit peter you want to jump in? yeah i was just going to point out you know we've seen some of the photos of the trump sons who are big game hunters and there are some people in the trump administration who are big game hunters which frankly is a notion that i thought was sort of going out the door this idea of of hunting purely for sport and hunting big game purely for sport but i mean the fact that they're going farther making it easier and more legal for people to hunt these these creatures is really upsetting. It is. You know, we had a huge moment of awakening across the world when the lion, Cecil, yeah. Sure, yeah. was lured out of a national park in Zimbabwe by an American trophy hunter and his Zimbabwean guide. And we were outraged, you know, partly because he lured this animal out of a park. He was a much-studied animal. 
But it was also he traveled thousands of miles just to kill an animal as a headhunting exercise. And, you know, part of his effort to claim the Africa Big Five, you get an award from the Safari Club International if you shoot a lion, a leopard, an elephant, a rhino, and a cape buffalo. And there's this competitive hunting world where you shoot bears of the world, cats of the world, antlered game of the world. And when you think about this enterprise, that the Congress, this new Congress with Republican control of both chambers, with the or the presidency held by a Republican, one of the first 10 yeah, Congressional yeah. Review Act measures they did, Congressional Review Act being a provision that came in during the Gingrich era, if you've, as you've talked about during this show previously, and it allows for an expedited review without hearings or any sort of proper oversight on the issue, and then simple majority vote, bypassing committee, get to the president, he signs it, only okay. used once prior to this presidency, and now it's been used about 15 times, and one of the first items out of the, the gate was to allow shooting yeah. of hibernating animals Can on national imagine? wildlife refuges under the pretense of regulatory reform that somehow yeah. this isn't, there's no business, there's not one job that's saved by no, this, no. there's not one dime that's protected. In fact, quite the opposite, as I said, you know, this, right. this, is, going to, this is going to cause people to stay away from Alaska. It's going to diminish wildlife populations. I mean, Alaska's legislature passed an intensive management act to drive down wolf and bear numbers in order to inflate moose and caribou numbers so more people can shoot them. <laughs> Treating the state yeah. as some sort of, you know, wild game farm, right. if you will. Yeah, right. Um, again, it's, uh, the humane economy is, is Wayne's book. I just have to mention one quick thing about uh, Don Young. I was, um, uh, I, I don't, I spend time at the White House. I very seldom troll the halls of the Capitol, but I was down there a couple of weeks ago with uh, uh, my friend, former con now former Congressman Sam Farr, whom you know, yes. and we were just walking through visiting a couple of former colleagues of his, and I walked by this office, and I just happened to walk by, and I stopped oh. dead in my tracks, and I looked in the office, it was Donald Young's office, and right in front of you is a skinned polar bear on yeah. the wall. A polar bear skin on the wall. That's the first thing. You walk in and you walk right into it. And I just thought, how sick. Yeah. I mean, Well, it's funny you mentioned Sam Farr because... And so when, I was told, Sam told me that if you go into his office, his office is just filled with heads of animals that he shot. Yeah. And Sam, uh, you know, I think he was a 10 or 12 term congressman. I've been yeah, around doing this a what? while. When he was a freshman lawmaker in the U.S. House, he did an amendment to stop the use of steel-jawed leg hole traps on National Wildlife Refuges. <laughs> and he passed it, and the guy who fought him on the floor was, was, was Don Young. Right. In fact, I was handing out little cards as the Ooh. House members were going on the subway to go to the yeah. Capitol yeah. to vote. And I saw Don Young, and I didn't give him one because I knew his views. But I gave it to another guy. They got into the same car. Young slowly grabbed it from the other lawmaker. You know, the guy willingly gave it up, looked at it, slowly turned his head to me, and Gave me the finger. No. <laughs> oh wow! Really? Yeah, Badge of honor. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Where exactly. That now, Wayne, we've talked politics a long time, and I know that the Humane Society. This is a non-political, non-partisan issue. But I was curious to see um, that while here's a headline: while Trump was dominating in deep red Oklahoma, this Democrat won by a landslide, and it turns out that he works for the Humane Society. Uh, Mr. Joe Maxwell. Yes. Yeah. 
So tell us about this. Well, what is this race all about? We actually had quite a quite a good election just on the narrow issue of animal protection. I don't think it was a good election, you know, in other yeah. senses because now we've seen the consequences with this U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service right. rule to protect wildlife and refuges being protected. But we want a big ballot measure in Massachusetts to stop confinement of farm animals. This is last November. The right? last November, yeah. November 2016. Right. Apologies for mentioning. And then we also want a measure in Oregon to stop any trade in ivory, rhino horn, shark fins, mm-hmm. all sorts of other species, par- animal parts. But in Oklahoma, the legislature referred a measure to the ballot called right to farm. And, you know, it sounds nice. I mean, we all agree there should be, you know, a right to farm. Agriculture is a hugely important industry to Oklahoma, to every state in the country, to the world. We need agriculture. But this was an attempt to deregulate agriculture, to say that you couldn't impose humane treatment standards. You couldn't stop manure from flowing into our water sources. You couldn't stop the overuse of antibiotics. You couldn't impose any regulations. The state and local Mm -hmm. governments could not stop this. It started with the, in, the, in the polls up 75 to 15 with 10 undecided. We launched a campaign with our Oklahoma allies and partners. Opposing and it. Opposing it. Yeah. To oppose yeah. right to farm. Their measure was called State Question 777. And uh, Joe Maxwell, one of my colleagues who was a former uh, Democrat uh, state rep in Missouri, state uh, senator and former lieutenant governor led the campaign hmm. with Drew Edmondson, who was the former four-term attorney general of yeah. Oklahoma, yeah. Uh, who preceded Scott Pruitt uh, as attorney general in Oklahoma. And they led the campaign, and we absolutely trounced this right-to-farm measure. Wow. We had a coalition wow. of family farmers, animal welfare groups, environmentalists, local governments, all the major newspapers in the state saw through it. And we won in so many counties that Trump carried with 75 or 80 percent of the vote. No kidding. And it was incredible. And it was a reminder to me that people don't go for this complete deregulation rhetoric, that somehow we don't want to give business a complete free pass, that they can do whatever they want. This was an attempt to make it a constitutional right for agriculture to do whatever they want in the state. The people said no, thanks to Joe and Drew and the rest of our team. Yeah, what a huge victory! Right? It was great. Sixty, we got more than sixty percent of the vote in Oklahoma. Yeah. Wow! And yeah. uh, and does is that uh, <clears throat> is that considered that? I mean, farms can can still survive. Do the business produce their crops, sell their crops, uh, even with sound regulations? Right. Yes, of course. That's a, that's part of the humane economy. That's part of my argument that yeah. that businesses that are playing by the rules in society that Actually, that are honoring the value system of their customers are the ones that are going to do business. I mean, if you're a if you're a farm that's a polluter, you know, or if you're a farm that's causing cruelty to animals, that's a business risk for you because once people find out, they're going to say we don't want to have anything to do with it. But if you have proper regulations to say you've got to treat your animals well that you're not going to be polluting the rivers that we recreate in, that people fish in, that people enjoy, that's going to be a whole different enterprise. And and public the public is going to feel confident. The public is going to think, okay, the government has an appropriate role in regulating your conduct to keep you inside your lane. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a humane economy principle that I talk about. Right. Um, what do you foresee? Now, maybe this is a bad <laughs> omen, this first uh, thing that Congress did. But what do you see in terms of the issue of animal rights of under the Trump administration? Well, we're Are very you worried. We're very, very deeply concerned. I mean, this was a great indicator of things. And we've also had a rule frozen. Now, this was not specifically targeted, but 
Uh, it came under the general Trump freeze of any regulation progress. The Obama administration got two rules out the door just at the end of the administration. One is to stop this practice called horse soaring. We're at horse shows for Tennessee walking horses. The trainers injure the front feet and legs of the horse intentionally. They either burn chemicals on their feet or they shave down their hoof and put a sharp object under their hoof and then pressure shoe so the object is causing tremendous pain and irritation to the horse. And when they're in the show, they step down and lift their legs higher. And that's what the, the judges value is the high-stepping gait of these Tennessee walking horses. It's called horse soaring. It's been a rampant abuse within this small segment of the walking horse industry for years. And but they're maiming the horses in maim- order to get them to do this little high step. Exactly. And last Congress, we had, two, we had 273 House members and 50 Senate members supporting a bill to crack down on this practice. The administration, seeing all that Republican and Democrat support, did this <laughs> rulemaking. Trump froze that rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so now we're hoping that Sonny Perdue, the incoming Agriculture Secretary, unfreezes it. And, you know, we, we also have another threat, the organic standards rule. There's a new organic standard. Now, organic's been in the marketplace. It means no pesticides, no hormones. But for animal welfare, it didn't mean much. Now they've upgraded the definition of organic to mean that the animals aren't mutilated, they get to be outside. And that risk, that, that rule is at risk now from both the Congress and the new USDA. We're worried about that. I do think we can drive a strong animal welfare agenda in Congress. Uh, we do have a lot of Republican support uh, mm-hmm. for issues like the anti-soaring bill, for yeah. a federal anti-cruelty statute, for stopping the use of big cats as pets. There are a number of big issues, probably about 12 or 15, but it remains to be seen. We're going to work really hard, right. and we're asking all you know Americans who care about animal welfare to join us. Go to, the, go to org. get involved. And, you know, pressure the Congress. We've seen what pressure can do. Oh, yeah, we have. Yes. HumaneSociety.org. I was going to ask you, I mean, I know we've talked often about um, the poultry farms and and the the cramped space and and letting them either free range or giving them more more, Mm -hmm. uh, bigger cages, if you will. But is there any one issue that Humane Society has made, you know, your priority nationwide? we have a lot the of them. I mean, factory farming is a big one. The one that still, you're, yeah, yeah. I mean, right. industrialization of agriculture where the animals Chickens are treated like things. And, yeah, yeah, the the laying hens are in small wire cages. They can't move. The breeding sows are in a two foot by seven foot cage. They can't move. But you know, there are a lot of issues that that are tied into that. We also are fighting the seal hunt in Canada now. Uh, we're combating puppy mills, the large scale commercial dog breeding operations that. Treat the dogs like a factory farming, right. you know, commodity. This is, a, this commodity. is an issue, again, that our friend Sam Farr was very, very, he was very, very active, in. yeah. And th- they're still going on. Still going on. We're fighting horse slaughter. That's going to be a big issue in Congress, killing American horses, healthy American horses for meat to export it to foreign countries. Horse soaring is an issue. Cosmetic testing on animals. Last Congress, we got a bill passed to restrict chemical testing on animals. Now we're really working hard to get the United States to ban all cosmetic testing on animals because the European Union, India, New Zealand, other countries in the world forbid this. Uh, Congresswoman Martha McSally and Congressman Don Beyer, Republican and Democrat, mm-hmm. Arizona, Virginia, uh, they've got legislation on this. Cory Booker is leading on the, on the Senate side. 
So, yes, we've got a big, robust agenda. And I think what the Humane Society of the United States does, Bill, and, and we've talked about this before many times, we do a lot of direct animal care, but our biggest purpose is to prevent cruelty, to try to change the way the biggest businesses, food and agriculture, testing, wildlife management, fashion, operate so that animals don't get put into these terrible circumstances in the first place, and that we use human innovation and creativity, like alternatives to animal testing, to find a way to do safety testing but not to victimize animals, to enjoy wildlife like grizzly bears and wolves without killing them, to watch them with a camera. There's a whole yeah. economy built around proper treatment of animals. We don't have to exploit them and kill them in these cruel ways. Wayne Pacelli, President and CEO of the Humane Society of America. Humane Society, I keep saying that the United States, humanesociety.org, you can see these manifold issues, multiple issues, all of which are so important uh, that uh, you could get involved in. So that's a good way to do it, sign up there. Now, I do have to ask you, you and uh, our mutual friend Seth Goldman from uh, Honest Tea yes. <laughs> are uh, the sort of the pioneers in this Meatless society, you're you're <laughs> driving us to. Uh, well, right? well, well, we're a plur- you're you're, st- you're a vegan. <laughs> I'm a vegan. Yes, we're a pluralistic organization. We've got farmers that are part of the Humane Society. We have 11 agriculture councils, working farmers and ranchers. Yeah. But technology is moving ahead, and now we are able, as entrepreneurs, as businesses, to fabricate plant-based proteins. Like Seth Goldman has mm-hmm. a company called Beyond Meat right. that is in. fabricating in. Um, plants to taste and feel in the mouth like meat. Can I tell you something? Can I tell you something? Seth, when Seth came in, he gave me two patties. Yeah. I took them home, put them on the grill, put them in a bun, put some cheese on it, and I gave it to my kids who were 12 and 9. And they ate the whole thing. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't until afterwards I go, there's no meat in that burger. They were stunned. They had no clue. I I eat them regularly. They're delicious. I'm serious. It'll be like computing. Where do you get them, Jamie? Jamie, where do you get them? Harris Teeter. Get them at the they're at Harris Teeter. They're at Whole Foods. There are some or, giants or as well. Yes, right here. Maybe them, they might have them. Well, there, uh, there are a whole. Yeah. There, there are so many different brands, but this Beyond Burger yeah. is the new one by Seth's company called Beyond Meat. Uh, but there are plant-based, you know, options in every major supermarket. But the other innovation that's happening is cell culture meat. You know, we've been growing cells in a laboratory to produce insulin to to deal with diabetes. Cell culture technology has been around for decades. Now it's being used to actually make animal tissue. So if you actually want real meat, if you want cow meat or pig meat, you can now grow that meat in a laboratory. You can grow the tissue without the brain and the heart and the bones and all of the collateral effects. And there's a a Mm. company called Modern Meadow. There's another one called Memphis Meats. These are companies that I talk about in my book, The Humane Economy. These are the pioneers that are going to change food, and they're also going to change the way we consume food because they're getting- So you could actually eat cow without killing your cow. Without killing the cow. You can just have the tissue so there's not consciousness. It's crazy, man. You you don't have all the waste associated with it. You don't have feeding of all the grain to the animals who inefficiently convert those grains to animal flesh. This is going to be, you know, in 2030, 2040, it's going to be in the marketplace in a big, big way. Whoa. Big wow. way. Yeah. Okay. The cutting edge in so many different ways, doing such great work. Thanks, Wayne. It's always good to see you. It's great to be with you guys. Thank Follow you him so again much for on humanesociety.org because, you know, you can't get in that often, but you can always be there every day, humanesociety.org. And the book, again, is The Humane Economy. Wayne, great to see you. Thank, Thank you so you. much. 
Well, Alexander's Jaffe joins us next from Vice News to talk about all the latest politics of the day. We'll be right back. What the hell is that from Sean Spicer? Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. All right, uh, on a Wednesday, April 12, it is the Bill Press Show. We are live from our nation's capital here, Washington, D.C. In our studio on Capitol Hill, we're brought to you today by the American Federation of Government Employees, a good men win of the AFGE. They're the ones who keep our federal agencies running day in and day out every day. Uh, for more information, check out their website, afge.org, under President uh, J. David Cox. I met a lot of them last night. Um, interview that I did of the new Librarian of Congress, Dr. Carla Hayden, a very, very impressive person. Yeah, uh, and there were many members of the Library of Congress staff who came uh, to the uh, to the session on the uh, Hill Center to to support their boss and uh, to hear their boss. A uh, little factoid, by the way, Alexander Jaffe joins us in the studio. I want to say hello from Vice News, political reporter for Vice News. Hi, Alexander. Nice Hi, to see you. Welcome back. Me. But here's a little factoid about a librarian of Congress. So, library started in 1880, just a couple of years after the presidency, four years after. And we've had 45 presidents. We have had 14 librarians of Congress only. Wait, really? That's it? Really? 14. Why? Pres- well, because they can stay longer than, ah. you know, they don't get thrown out after eight years, right? I'm they surprised Trump longer, didn't but... throw out the library. <laughs> <laughs> but they've only been, four- they've only <laughs> right. been, only right. been 14. Wow. But get this, 13 of them have been white men. Huh. Stop it. Really? White- yes. Now, 85% Jesus. of librarians are women. Right. By the way. Oh, man. My but grandma was a librarian. There yeah. you go. 85%. But- so she <laughs> is Carla Hayden, uh, the first woman, the first person of color, the first African-American, and the first librarian in 60 years to hold the post of librarian of Congress. Wow. I mean, when everybody else has been a white man, yeah, you yeah. can sort of own a lot of firsts. Where do they find their librarians if they're not librarians? <laughs> uh, some of them were uh, hack politicians. Okay. Uh, some of them, there was a, a famous poet, Archibald McLeish. A famous historian, Daniel Borston, was one, uh, and others are just, I don't know, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. friends of the president or something. But um, she's, she was head librarian in Chicago, head librarian in Baltimore. You know, she's got some real chops nice, in terms yeah. of library uh, skills, and she's a great, great person. I'm stuff. genuinely stunned that Trump hasn't fired her. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's terrible, but uh, like that's my first thought is, okay, well. I don't think he spends a lot of time in the library. (laughs) Yeah, he probably doesn't even know about it. (laughs) Just don't tell him about it and she'll be cool. Right. Uh, And you've been out on the road, Alexandra, with some of the Freedom Caucus members at their uh, town halls. Who you been with? What'd you find? Ted Yoho last Saturday and Jim Jordan yesterday. Jim Jordan was one of the founders. So we were sort of talking about what the role of the Freedom Caucus is now that Republicans control Washington. I mean, we saw them 
gain a lot of power and a lot of attention as an obstruction, a force of obstruction in the Obama administration. But now they're undermining Republicans. So we talked a little bit about, you know, whether they're going to continue with that strategy, how they feel about that, whether that is a strategy or just sort of a default mode for them. And it seems like it is their plan. They're going to keep standing up to Trump. They think what they did was perfectly fine with the AHCA. Um, so we'll see more fights. Are they sort of, um, you know, uh, walking proudly now and uh, kind of pounding their chest after uh, defeating the uh, the repeal uh, plan? In many ways, yes. They have all claimed that they saved America from a far worse fate than Obamacare um, and that they're just trying to make legislation the way that it needs to be made, which is slowly with input from the public, et cetera. And they've got a good case to make. I mean, the way that they rammed it through, you know, within a couple of months. A um, couple of months, 18 days. Right, exactly. Um, it's an easy case for them to make sort of politically. But when you talk to constituents, like yesterday in Ohio, we spoke with a Republican supporter of Jim Jordan for years, but she said, I'm a little bit frustrated. He he does need to get things done now that there's a, a Republican president in the White House. Did he have a town hall? He did not. He had four sort of roundtables with different constituencies. Oh, okay. Very easy Ted Yoho did. Oh, yeah. Um, and the health care bill, health care as an issue came up broadly. People want to see them fix it. Um, they want to see them address it. But the one interesting sort of question he got was from a conservative um, sort of voter who said, I don't want you to support any compromise. I'm glad that you stood up to the AHCA, but I'm seeing this talk of a compromise with Paul Ryan, and I don't want you to support that. So they're getting pressure from both sides, it seems like. Right. What, are, what do the Freedom Caucus members think about Donald Trump's pledge that he's going to take them on in 2018. Um, do they take it seriously? or Not at all. And really? It's, it's wow. Hard. No. <laughs> and it, it's hard to take seriously when he's attacking some of the most conservative members. They're well-liked in their districts. How do you find a more conservative member to run to the, to the right or an establishment member that would take them on, an establishment candidate? So none of them were worried. Um, Jim Jordan was very careful not to criticize Trump, but he did say, I'm not worried about tweets. Tweets don't phase me, so... I think that they're sort of riding high right now. Yeah. They have the upper and, hand. And, and you have the feeling that they're safe in their districts anyhow? It seems like it, yeah. They're pretty deep red districts. Um, barring, I mean, even even with the wave, they would be probably fine. So they are in this position where they can sort of hold up legislation. And um, the, the issue that they are facing, though, is they're seeing some members consider leaving. We've already seen a couple of members leaving. There's talk of potentially more. So they don't want to dilute their power or their ranks by overplaying their hand. Um, so what I was told by both Yoho and Jordan is they're reluctant to get in a fight over government funding and sort of they're going to save their um, oh, huh. yeah, ammunition for bigger fights down the road. So that'll be interesting That's a to pretty watch. big fight, shutting down the exactly. government. But, but they're saying they're not going to go there. They don't want a big fight, but the, the question is whether they'll include um, funding for the wall in the CR. And that could be a problem for Democrats. So there's probably going to be a fight regardless. Do the Freedom Caucus members want the wall in or out? In, in. surprisingly, yeah. And Paul Ryan wants it out, he has said, I believe, because he knows he may need some Democratic votes. Well, that would make sense for him. Uh, the White House has asked for it, though. So it's another one of those negotiations. They'll have to get to the middle somehow. How many members of the Freedom Caucus are there? They won't say. <laughs> it's it's well, 30 <laughs> to 40. They like to stay mysterious. <laughs> so, right? Yeah. That's weird. It's so that you can't whip them publicly. 
that you can't count their votes. Sure, 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 sure. That's how they they maintain power. By so are there the secret theory. members? There are secret members, yes. Jesus Christ. Um, Jim Jordan did tell me he is Mark Meadows' best friend. And so that's why they get things done. They're all, like, really good friends, and their meetings are great. So. Well, when they have a meeting, you guys are outside the door. Can't you count? No, because they sneak out back doors. I should do that, though. Next time they have a meeting on the Hill, I'll post up at all all possible exits. We'll, we'll get you a count. <laughs> all right. And, you know, but obviously some people may not show up for that reason, right? Because they know they were watching, yeah. yeah. So I've, I've heard that. I was curious because I've heard the number 40, and I, th- I was just wondering if they have that many. Um, uh, so given that, what do you think – you know, every day changes whether or not there is going to be a second attempt to get a repeal measure passed or, which certainly Mike Pence was working on last week, right. spending two days on the Hill, or whether they're just going to, as uh, Donald Trump originally indicated he wanted to do, is to accept the reality of defeat and move on to something else. Uh, what do you think the chances are they're going to try a, a you know a redo? It's so funny. It seems like Trump himself goes back and forth. Apparently, yeah, last night yeah. on Fox, he talked about doing tax reform before or health care before tax reform. Again, because still. I think they realize they can't get to the cuts that they want without you know health care. Um, and he's finally sort of wising up to the way that that has to work. And Spicer uh, said that at the briefing yesterday too, right. which is there would be certain they believe savings. If they don't do the subsidies anymore, for example, all that money they would save, not to mention it would bounce people off of their health care. Right. But they'd save that money. They could use that for tax reform. But he, he didn't say it's got to be one before the other. He said that was the thinking that propelled them to go for health care first. Right. And I think that they're going in that direction. And there is a little bit of movement on the Hill. I mean, Mark Meadows actually met with Paul Ryan yesterday to talk sort of the, the next steps in building a plan. Um, the question is, will it be any more viable than the last one? There's mm-hmm. no indication that they're putting anything in there that would get through the Senate. So I don't see it. it it'll keep moving. It's not going to go anywhere. Right. Now, have you also t- talked to the um, the so-called Tuesday group? A little bit. It's interesting that they've stayed sort of above the fray. I know. And got no. no blame for any of this. No. So the Tuesday group are the um, everything's relative. Moderate Republicans, sure. correct? Yes. Uh, I forget who their leader is. But uh, at any rate, I don't know. It's not a caucus, right? So uh, do they, I don't know whether they even have caucus meetings. I don't know how many of them there are. But there are enough of them that they are a countervailing force in the House. I think. Exactly, To yeah. the Freedom Caucus, I mean. They, they obviously don't stay as sort of cohesive as the Freedom Caucus. But right. they are significant and important. And I think... Um, Republicans have generally favored, you know, Tuesday group issues and moderate issues because they're aware of the electoral, you know, impact of that. Um, They're the ones that Republicans worry about. They're they're the most vulnerable, which I think is why they were let off the hook on this, because, you know, leadership doesn't want to call them out. They could lose their seats. Mm -hmm. Um, But we'll see how much of a role they have going forward, because it does seem like the House Freedom Caucus, by stopping the first bill, has the leg up on the second bill. They sort of have to work with them more than the moderates. More than the moderates, yeah. yeah. But isn't it true also that, uh, 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 so Trump, uh, uh, Pence rather, and to certainly sent Trump I guess too, they were paying more attention, and so Paul Ryan, 
more attention to the Freedom Caucus and, okay, what changes can we make in this legislation to get your votes, to get Freedom Caucus votes? But at that same time, every everything they gave the Freedom Caucus, weren't they risking losing a, a Tuesday group member? Absolutely. And from what I could tell, and um, I was told this by staffers on the Hill, part of that was just bungled negotiations by Donald Trump. I mean, he was the one that was meeting with the House Freedom Caucus and offering them concessions without a full mm. awareness of sort of the legislative impact of that. Um, and so there was some indication that there, there was frustration that he did offer them because when you take an inch, they wanted to take a mile. You get, you know, an elimination of, you know, the 10 essential benefits they wanted yeah, to yeah. eliminate more. So he may have overstepped. And I think that they're trying to figure out a, a cohesive, a more cohesive strategy between Trump and Ryan going forward. Alexander Jaffe with us from Vice News. It's news.vice.com. Is that how we follow you? Yes. News.vice.com. Alexander and our good friend Evan McMorris Santoro. Uh, between the two of you, stirring up a lot of stuff here in Washington. <laughs> um, it's everything is, so everything is going so smoothly. Uh, <laughs> everybody on the same page in the House. Um, what a contrast to uh, the White House. Uh, not everybody on the same page. Uh, not even everybody working for Donald Trump on the same page. What's your read on that and how's it turn out? I just, how do you even keep track of all of it? I mean, this weekend, Nikki Haley sort of came out as um, more hardline on Syria than Tillerson. We couldn't really figure out where his foreign policy is. Sean Spicer's huge gaffe yesterday comparing Assad to Hitler. Now this talk of Bannon potentially being... Yeah. <laughs> right. Now this talk of Bannon potentially being fired, I mean, it's like every day a different story. Um, and who knows what the next one will be. And by the way, Russia's in the backdrop of all of this. You know, it's like you, we mentioned all this turmoil and like people say Trump might be in real trouble here. You look at his approval numbers are falling more and more. And like, I just don't think Trump cares. Like I, this is I think I honestly think this is where Trump is happiest when there's just total and utter chaos. That is how he manages. Yeah. You know, he creates these warring factions, lets them fight it out. And whoever wins, that's that's where he goes. Um, I think he is frustrated with Bannon from what we could tell by that New York Post quote that he gave. Yeah. That Bannon's getting all of the like attention and credit for his White House. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So like I think uh, that's what's getting to him. Yeah. Axios wrote up this whole like whether or not he's actually pissed off at Bannon. So this is. What they wrote this morning, uh, Mike Allen writing in it. What got Bannon in trouble? Axios AM is told that President Trump didn't like the stories about Bannon as the Svengali, and that is what has essentially pissed him off. So, like, no, I don't, don't want to put, like, be too general about it, but all these jokes that everybody is making about Steve Bannon running the White House. President he, Bannon. President Bannon. <laughs> like, they've actually gotten to Trump, and he's actually going to change the way that he does business because people were joking about it. Right. So, like, this is a president that Saturday Night Live could actually take down, <laughs> you know, if they play their cards right. But they've all had their turns. I mean, for early on, there was a spate of stories about Reince Priebus was he was on his way out because he was such a bungler and couldn't get everybody right. together. And now you sort of don't hear that much about Priebus. He's the peacemaker more right. now. Uh, then all the stories about Kellyanne Conway. Yeah, she when she was doing a lot more media and creating a lot more a lot of gaffes, and and it was all about she was the most important person and and Trump loved her and everything. We haven't heard much about Kellyanne Conway for a couple, the last couple of weeks. She hasn't been She's part been of these stories low. very very much. Yeah. So she used to come to the briefings every day. She right. no longer does. She's not, she's not there. Smart on her part, I believe. Right. 
Uh, so now it's Bannon versus Jared Kushner, whom you must say would have a certain advantage in this oh, dogfight, right? It does seem like he has weighed in. There, there were reports that he weighed in and sort of said Bannon has to go, and that may have been what swayed um, Trump. I think it's it's interesting, though, all of these, you know, advisors that you're right have had their moment know how to sort of play Trump and know when to push and know when to fall back like Kellyanne Conway has sort of dropped off. It seems like Bannon may have overplayed a little bit because he is very chatty. He speaks to the media a lot. A lot of those positive stories are planted in part by him and his allies. So I, I think he um, sort of overstepped and didn't realize that he um, may have gotten on the wrong side of the president. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and the big you know, the parlor game in Washington now is how long he lasts, whether he lasts at all. It's who knows. I've, There's too much turmoil for him to get rid of Bannon at this point, don't you think? Uh, it seems to me, but yeah. uh, and I yeah, and I think that would be very unlike Trump. Right. To, He's very loyal. He's kept him around forever. Him. But, so. But who knows? And then there is the looming presence of Ivanka, Eric Trump, his sister, yesterday saying that one of the reasons, main reasons why Donald Trump sent the cruise missiles into Syria is because Ivanka says, this is terrible. You have to do something. Right. Was he also the one that said um, it shows that we're not in cahoots yes. with Russia? <laughs> yes. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, she's obviously a big player. She herself said um, when responding to critics don't say that I'm complicit. You don't know what I'm doing behind the scenes, basically. So, I mean, I'm sure she's been a bigger hand than we realize. She's just quieter about it. And now she's going to be taking a more public role, which I think is probably a, a, a good PR move for Donald Trump because she's well liked. People trust her, um, at mm -hmm. least in a lot of places in America. So I think that's a good move to, to move her more into the forefront. Um, you, so um, you mentioned Eric Trump said, this proves that we're really not in cahoots with Russia because everybody was saying, you know, my daddy is Putin's best friend. Look, you know, he's attacking Putin now and and accusing Putin, which he did yesterday. They had a little briefing where they showed some documents, national security documents, which they say prove that Russia was, that Syria, in fact, knew what they were doing. They did it, and Russia knew that they were doing it and covered it, helped cover it up. Um and so, and and also, there is that fact. And um, let's let's face it: the whole Russian-Trump connection. We're not talking about it this week. Right? No, we're not. You're right. Lots lots of other things have overshadowed it. Right, including and, and mainly this cruise missile attack. Right. So, does that mean that that question and the FBI investigation and the Senate Intelligence Committee investigation? And maybe even under new leadership, the House Intelligence Committee investigation will kind of go away, disappear? No, absolutely not. There will be another. I mean, you've seen the pattern with these leaks that sort of push the, the story forward come when things are quiet for Trump. So there will be another leak that, that you know, blows up and it becomes the central focus. There was um, the Carter Page story last night, yeah. for instance, that we're not talking yeah, about, but we no. should. Yeah, yeah. No, tell us about that. Um, the, so the Washington Post reported that um, a FISA warrant was obtained, was um, delivered to monitor Carter Page as a potential agent of sort of Russia um, over his, I guess, connections with Russian spies in the past. And that suggests that there's reasonable cause to think that the, the Trump campaign was in contact with Russian spies, with Russian actors. 
that's a huge concern for them. Now, a lot of Trumpies have come out and said, like, oh, this proves that they were being spied on, which is... But then there was another report. There was another report on that um, from, I guess, Republicans and Democrats that reviewed the intelligence that Nunes used to say, oh, yes, he's been wiretapped, and they said that they did nothing wrong. The Obama administration did nothing illegal. Right. So we'll see. I mean, Spicer will be asked about it. Um, It could pick up traction. Well, the Garter Page story is big, uh, and... And yes, the uh, FBI that was so concerned that the Trump team may have, in fact, been colluding with Russia, which is the whole purpose of this investigation, to throw the election to Trump, that they sought, went to the FISA court, as you pointed out, sought a warrant, got a warrant, saying we have enough suspicion that this guy is in cahoots with the Russians that we need to conduct surveillance on him, that one guy, Carter Page, and the court said, looked at the evidence and said, yeah, you've got our, your, you've got our authority, which, which belies Donald Trump's statements that any talk of a Russian connection, and, and Sean Spicer, too, kept saying, right. there's nothing there, there's nothing there, there's nothing to investigate. Yes, there is. Right. And now they're downplaying yes, there Carter is. Page. And right. Oh, they'll throw him under the bus. Right, exactly. Like they threw Paul Manafort under the bus right. as well. Um, we have to get back to um, where we started the show this morning, too, which is uh, yesterday's briefing. Uh, I was there, uh, a gasp of disbelief when uh, uh, Sean Spicer was asked about um, the bombing uh, last week in Syria and uh, what the motivation for it was. Uh, and Sean Spicer, as we know, going farther than anybody thought he would ever go, here he is. You know, you had a you know, someone as despicable as Hitler, who didn't even sink to the, to the, to using chemical weapons. So you have to, if you're Russia, ask yourself, is this a country that you and a regime that you want to align yourself with? And everybody is sitting there thinking, what? Hitler (laughs) didn't use chemical weapons in World War II? I mean, what? We're just trying to kind of, you know... (laughs) Factor that in, and what the hell was he saying? Uh, he's looking people didn't boo him out of the room when finally uh, Cecilia Garcia gets a chance to say, mm, you, want to, <laughs> you don't want to double think that, and then he just digs down and almost makes it worse with this sort of nonchalant way. I think when you come to sarin gas, uh, there was no he was not using the gas on his own people the same way that. A shot is doing. I mean, there was clearly. I, I, I understand your point. Thank you. I uh, thank you. I appreciate that. There was not in the in the. He brought him into the to um, to the Holocaust Center. I understand that. But I'm saying in the way that Assad used them, where he went into towns, dropped them down to innocent into the middle of towns. It was brought. To, so the use of it. And I appreciate the clarification there. That was not the intent. Uh, yeah, they're going to rename Auschwitz today Holocaust <laughs> Center. Yes. To the Holocaust Center, I understand. Holocaust Center. I mean, it's just on so many levels. It's just, you know, I just was watching on CNN, Steve Goldstein, we played him earlier from the Anne Frank Center, just saying they've got to fire this guy. He's a, it sounds like a Holocaust denier, which I don't think he is, but still. He's a moron. (laughs) He's he's like a stuttering moron. Sometimes he makes crazy comments that are like for spin, and you know that this is premeditated. That time, I I have no idea what was going on in his head. But, you know, we we all know that. I mean, sarin gas was invented by the Germans. It was used first by the Nazis. And so what? I I don't even know whether Hitler dropped it from planes or not on any populations at all. But 
we know what he did do at the at the concentration camps at the and during the Holocaust and uh, the use of that chemical. And to say that there was no use of chemical weapons and then to distinguish it from what Assad did as if what Hitler did was almost innocent because he did it at Holocaust centers, right. not just in towns in the, in the middle of towns. Uh, don't compare so, anything to Hitler. Yeah, no, you know what's as bad as that from Sean Spicer. You know what's as bad as Hitler? Hitler. It's yeah. <laughs> about it. But the question to you as a journalist is, you know, Spicer, what, I mean, what's his future as press secretary? Is this a great is, question? I mean, he's he's had a, a lot of high-profile gaps. Yes, yes. Um, he survives <laughs> this, by the way. Let's be clear. He survives this. This does not rile Trump's feathers. I that's think that's probably true. Really? I think that's true because we've seen in the past Trump sort of brush off anti-Semitism, other mistakes along this line, like the International Holocaust Day statement that didn't mention the Jews. I mean, he doesn't seem to think that this is a particularly big problem. <laughs> yeah. This is this will not even register. Yeah, this is, a, this is this is the work of Sean Spicer, by the way, who dressed up as an Easter bunny for the Easter egg roll under right. George W. Bush. That's right. And we're all wondering if he's going to be out in the next Monday in his Easter bunny outfit. Oh God. God, that's how he could turn it around. <laughs> hey, Alexandra, good work, good it's reporting. Up. Thanks so much for joining us this yeah. morning. Thanks for coming in. This Have a great day, folks. Is we'll the see Bill you tomorrow. Press show. The Parting Shot with Bill Press. This is The Bill Press Show. You know, the French people were uh, shocked a couple of days ago when presidential candidate Marie Le Pen, who's the daughter of a Holocaust denier herself, she proved that uh, she's won too when she said that the French government had nothing to do with rounding up Jews and sending them to concentration camps during World War II. French government, she said, had nothing to do with it. Well, yesterday it was our turn to be shocked when White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer, in effect, denied that the Holocaust ever existed. Yep. In his zeal to prove that Donald Trump was right in launching those cruise missiles against Syria last week, Spicer asserted that Syrian President Bashar al-Assad was even worse than Hitler. Quote, we didn't use chemical weapons in World War II, Spicer insisted. Quote, you know you had someone as despicable as Hitler who didn't even sink to using chemical weapons. What? If you heard a gasp from the back of the room, that was me. Did he, I mean, what was going on? Did he forget about the Holocaust and six million Jews gassed to death in those gas chambers? Did he not know that sarin gas was invented by Germans and used for the first time by the Nazis in World War II? And a few minutes later, Spicer tried to walk it back, lamely explaining that he was only talking about dropping chemical bombs from airplanes. Again, quote, speaking about Hitler, he was not using gas on his own people in the same way that Assad is doing, said Spicer, again forgetting that millions of Hitler's victims were, in fact, German citizens, German Jews, and others. The difference, Spicer argued, get this, was that Hitler, again, quote, brought them into the Holocaust centers instead of bombing them in the middle of their towns. Holocaust centers, which is the nicest way I ever heard anybody describe the death camps, the murder camps, the death chambers. What can you say about all of this except that the level of ignorance in this White House 
from Donald Trump and from everybody around him is simply mind-boggling and scary. This is The Bill Press Show.